when it comes to your finances, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, and you've invested all that you can. Now it's time to take those investments to the next level by using the brand behind every great investor, Yahoo Finance. As America's number one finance destination, Yahoo Finance has everything you need, whether you're a seasoned trader or just dipping your toes into the market. Join the millions of investors who trust Yahoo Finance to guide them on their financial journey. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. This podcast contains explicit language. So that happened. Another week, another leak. One week after a sheaf of leaked documents fingered Unioil as a hothouse of global corruption, we get the Panama Papers, a massive document dump that reveals the extent to which Panama has been used as a tax haven for the world's plutocrats and the many global leaders who've been swift to stash their cash offshore. The system is broken, but we'll break down the story with the help of Americans for Financial Reform's Alexis Goldstein. Meanwhile, six years ago, an explosion at Massey Energy's Upper Big Branch Mine in West Virginia claimed the lives of 29 coal miners. This week, a court has rendered a sentence on Massey Energy CEO Don Blankenship and his involvement in a conspiracy to systematically flout safety regulations. His punishment? One year in jail. And if that seems deeply screwed up to you, we will help you nurture your outrage. Finally, with every passing week on the campaign trail, resolution seems further away and tensions keep getting ratcheted up. We'll discuss the New York Daily News interview that caught Bernie Sanders up in a hot sack of nonsense. Plus, Wisconsin Congressman Mark Pocan joins us to talk about how his fellow Wisconsinites voted in this week's primary and how they may vote again in the general. I'm Jason Lincolns with Huffington Post reporters Zach Carter, Arthur Delaney, Ryan Grimm, and Paige Lavender. But here's what happened first. Hello, good day, and welcome to everyone in America, the world, and all of our ships at sea. This is Jason Lincolns, host of So That Happened, and editor of Eat the Press of the Huffington Post. We have a good podcast today. Joining us right off the bat, we have our pal, Zach Carter. Whoo, boy. Getting up from this great sleep I've been having in this tent tent where I live in the studio. Yep, I can't wait for the next season where we upgrade that storyline. And and on the other microphone from, uh, uh, oh gosh. Americans for Financial Reform. Americans for Financial Reform. We have Alexis Goldstein. Hey guys. From Planet Smart About Things. So guys, a great man named David Lee Roth once said, Panama, Panamaha. He had a point. He had a point. Um, <laughs> last week, we had a big leak story to talk about, uh, the Uno Oil case. And like over the weekend, someone said, we'll see your Uno Oil and raise you the Panama Papers. Hey, 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 hey. I got, I got awards on the line here, man. You can't say that it's better than the Uno Oil leak. Okay, you're right. You're right. It's as good <laughs> it's as, really the, good. It's good as stuff. the Uno Oil leak. Um, and to, it's, it's a to, a certain extent, to a certain extent, Zach Carter was right about Panama. Oh, it just feels so good. Which we'll get to. I but love being first right. First of all, let's <laughs> let's walk people through what were the Panama Papers in case you didn't hear about it. And it wasn't really well covered in mainstream news, so there's that. Weird. Weird how a story about international corruption and tax evasion didn't get a whole lot okay, of coverage. Okay, so it's a story about international media. corruption and tax evasion, but what is it precisely? Alexis, would you like to, to give the... Uh... Well, it's essentially a company located in Panama that provided shell corporations for people that wanted to hide their taxes. And it turns out a lot of very powerful, very politically connected people were using them to hide money. Um, And shell corporations are used by people all over the world. um, And it sort of manifests itself in the United States. uh, To give you a very specific example is Miami real estate market, for example. Mm -hmm. A lot of apartments are being purchased, like multi-million dollar condos, uh, by shell corporations. And you can't really see who the actual beneficial owner is. And so you have all of this real estate being gobbled up by who knows who knows. 
Right. And it turns out that they're everything from dictators to politically connected people. um, And they're driving up the prices of real estate in Miami and probably in Manhattan and probably in San Francisco. And it's all basically laundered money that's flowing into the United States uh, through the use of shell corporations. That's one of the sort of more narrow local U.S. focused stories that we've seen out of this. The Miami Herald reported on that. Right. Um, but this has implications all over the world. The Iceland prime minister had to resign over this because apparently he was using some of these shell companies as well. It's yeah. funny how in other countries, <laughs> politicians who use shell corporations to like hide assets and avoid taxes is like this really super embarrassing thing and people have to resign for it. Whereas in the United States, we just have presidential candidates who like openly <laughs> use them. And as near as I can tell, it's just Iceland. <laughs> it's just Iceland is the one place left on earth where there's actual accountability for doing these sorts. It's of a things. big deal in the UK too. David David Cameron is taking some heat oh, for this right. too. Um, and and he's you know from the Conservative Party. But you know Mitt Romney ran for president in 2012, and a big theme of his campaign was it's okay to hide your shit offshore. As long <laughs> as you fine. know you you're smart about it, right? You just have to be smart about it. Yeah, don't don't break the law. Just just don't Ten- pay. The taxes. Technically, these people were being, I guess, quote unquote, smart about it. But the problem is, is that there was a massive leak of documents that I think that, it was 11 million. It's a huge amount of data. And there's a uh, the International Consortium of Investigative Journalists. Yeah, that's uh, Michael right. Hudson is their director. He wrote the book Monster about AmeriQuest and the subprime financial crisis. Paul Patrick. Um, <laughs> sorry, sorry, I just had a cough there. Um, so, yeah, I mean, ICIJ is really good, and they've got a lot of people working on this. And and you know, they do this right. There will be stories about this for years to come because there's just so much information. Well, and they keep hinting that there's going to be more revelations about people from the United States. I haven't seen anything spectacular yet, but it seems to have been focused on folks outside of the U.S. so far. Yeah, so far, and well, and who knows? I mean, this one particular company, Mossack Fonseca. Um, they were like number four, so yeah. maybe people in the U.S. only use like number three, two, and one. You're right, and we've the, the thing. The thing about this leak, also with the Una Oil leak, um, it's it's not like we didn't know that Panama was an offshore tax haven. I mean, in 2011, I called a guy to set up an offshore <laughs> shell, <laughs> shell corporation and bank account in Panama, and was and asked them, will will the U.S. free trade agreement and its its uh, its tax information agreement in any way infringe on my privacy or my ability to avoid taxes. And I was told, no, this will not, this will not affect you in any way. And then I said, I'm a reporter. And then, then the conversation ended. Um, but, <laughs> but I mean, th- this was, th- this is something that we know has been going on for a long time. And that the, essentially the U S government has been sort of, sort of winking and nodding at as, as an okay thing to do. I mean, there was no reason to do a free trade agreement with Panama in 2011, other than to say the status quo is basically okay. I mean, their GDP is like 0.2% of the U.S. GDP. They're not like a big agricultural producer. There just aren't a whole lot of businesses that make a whole lot of sense to be pursuing this free trade agreement. Their main economic thing in Panama is operating as a tax haven. Um, And so, surprise, here's a whole bunch of data showing that they're a tax haven. But I think these journalists need to be given a lot of credit for actually being able to detail the way this thing works and making it hard for people to ignore it, right? Like the president, President Barack Obama had to talk about offshore tax haven abuse in in Panama as a result of this leak, even though he signed the free trade deal, which, you know, allowed ba- it to happen. Well, not allowed, but yeah, allowed. I think allowed is fair, which 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 made essentially cemented this as the status quo. Uh, as the way the U.S. will relate to to Panama, but we'll see about these these Americans. I mean, it is interesting. You know, you, you never know how these leaks come about, right? I, I don't think you can blame the journalists for writing about something when it's obviously good, good shit on corruption. And they corruption. spent a year working on it. Right. It's not like this happened. You know, they just decided it's an interesting time to do this. They've been working on this for a year, pouring over the documents, trying to figure out what the most interesting stories to tell were. Why is this story important for just ordinary people? Well, I think that. If you think about it, in the example I used before about the real estate market, if you feel like you're being priced out of, if you live in a city and you feel like you're being priced out, a lot of that is because people are allowed to basically launder money into the United States and hide it in real estate. Um, They do it a lot in San Francisco. There's a lot of vacancies in some of the apartments in San Francisco. It happens a ton in Manhattan and other parts of New York. I'm sure it's happening in D.C. too. Um, And the Treasury... 
uh, through its FinCEN department, which kind of like investigates money laundering and right. terrorism and things like that, have just in January started looking at people that are using all cash to buy apartments, but they're only looking at it in Miami and New York. And hopefully something like this will lead them to start to look into other cities, maybe even broaden it to not just all cash offers, but maybe 90% cash <laughs> offers. Or um, and So essentially the, 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 uh, <clears throat> the promise that's being made to people who are increasingly finding themselves being priced out of housing markets is that big developers to de- develop luxury condos and things and luxury apartment buildings are adding to the real estate market and eventually it will filter down and make things more affordable but it doesn't become more affordable if you can just you know purchase it at a high price and then leave it vacant if, if a ton of rich people keep bidding up the price for real estate through secret offshore accounts, it's really hard to see how that turns into lower real estate prices for ordinary people. Or forget even about that. I mean, people are hiding money overseas in these shell corporations, which means that regular ordinary people who use TurboTax to pay their taxes are essentially contributing more because these people are able to hide their funds and we have less revenue to do things like make affordable housing or repair public housing or invest in our infrastructure. Um, so it's just a huge, and, and the, I think the U.S. government has been complacent in some ways in this for a long time. There are steps that they could have taken to sort of tighten um, some of the rules around this to make sure that this happens a bit less. And I think that they've been a little bit hands off. Just a shout out to Senator Carl Levin, who, when he was in the Senate, kind of made offshore tax havens a, a point. Deal, I feel yeah. like not too much happened in the wake, uh, despite his heroic efforts to try to call attention to this prior to the Panama Papers. Uh, you know, Panama is not the only offshore tax haven, right? You've oh, got yeah. Monaco, the Virgin Islands, Monaco Bermuda, etc. And even this company yeah. mostly used the British Virgin Islands, so they happen to be based in Panama, but they weren't just do- offshoring <laughs> in Panama. They were helping people offshore in the British Virgin Islands a lot, too. Right. So this is, this is a big international network, but we did have an opportunity to do something serious about this in 2011. And President Barack Obama signed a tax information agreement with Panama. And, you know, if if that agreement had been really strong and had been good, we would have seen a lot of prosecutions for tax evasion of, of U.S. people. You guys remember all those big prosecutions of, of tax evaders, right? Well, right? Remember those? No. Nope. Sure, no. Did I not don't. happen. All right. <laughs> so we had an opportunity to do something about it, and we didn't. And that's the story of a lot of of, of the Obama presidency is, well, sometimes sometimes we care about international elites doing terrible things with, with financial markets. Sometimes sometimes we're kind of okay with it, and we're, we're willing to paper over it with an agreement that doesn't really do anything. Okay, well, we will have Alexis back on in a little bit to talk about something else, but there you have it. Panama Papers. Massive corruption. Please keep leaking documents. We love leaked documents. My email address is jason at huffingtonpost.com. All right. We'll be right back. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hello and welcome back to So That Happened, uh, your one-stop clearinghouse for Wisconsin representatives. And today we have a treat. Uh, joining me and our pal Arthur Delaney, Hi. we have on the line with us Congressman Mark Pocan of the 2nd District of Wisconsin, where Madison lives. Uh, Congressman Pocan, welcome. Thank you, guys. Glad to be here. We're glad to have you. So uh, let's just start. Real easy. Uh, there was an election uh, uh, this week, 
in Wisconsin, Democratic and Republican primary. I, I bet you're itching to tell us who you voted for. <laughs> well, you know, I, I think uh, we had a pretty interesting day. We, we like Minnesota and Michigan, uh, went with Bernie Sanders on the Democratic side. Uh, and on the Republican side, I think we maybe helped them uh, jumpstart and save their party, uh, even though I don't think a single person who endorsed Ted Cruz in Wisconsin actually wants him to be president. They knew that that was the path to an open convention. So uh, I think they succeeded in uh, delivering that message. So we, we had a good primary day, and you know we're going to see where things uh, take us in both parties from here. Uh, Congressman Pocan, tell us a little about that Republican side of the primary. I've heard people say Wisconsin is just too nice, too decent for a guy like Donald Trump to succeed. Do you think that's a smart analysis? Yeah, you know, D- Donald Trump is kind of like, you know, trying to sell Velveeta in Wisconsin, you know. It's not, <laughs> uh, you know, we know real cheese, you know, and uh, he's just not uh, the real thing. And, you know, people are fundamentally nice in the upper Midwest, I think a little bit humble. And, you know, he kind of is the exact opposite of all those things. So it wasn't a state that was tailor-made for him. He made a number of gaps along the way. Uh, we have a big conservative uh, talk radio presence in the Milwaukee area. And someone who's been trashing him for months, he accidentally wound up on that program. Yeah, and, You know, it was really showing that Donald Trump, I think a lot of the things that we thought maybe he was being clever and pulling when he's hit on some things, I think it's been just him throwing it against the wall on his own. And uh, in this case, he didn't know where the wall was in Wisconsin. So you voted for Ted Cruz. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I have to admit, I did think for a little bit about voting for, for Donald Trump. I thought, you know... Why not throw those guys in that? But, uh, and I know a few people who did that. But, um, you know, in the end, I think uh, you know, Republicans stayed pretty much in the Republican primary. Democrats stayed pretty much the Democratic primary. Very little uh, eventfulness in that area. So I get the sense you're being coy here with your vote. Uh, and I think there's one of the reasons may be that uh, you are a superdelegate, correct? Yeah, you know, and, and I, the way I look at a superdelegate is, you know, based on the way I think it was intended, which is, you know, if there are adjustments and things you need throughout the process, because it's a long process, superdelegates have the flexibility to switch who they support and things. And so I've just said uh, for quite a while that I was waiting until we get through all the primaries and caucuses, which is, you know, somewhere around mid-June after the, I think, D.C. may be the last one. Uh, and then I'll, I'll figure that out. But, you know, I don't really know a whole lot of people who are just dying to know who uh, I was supporting uh, so they could support someone. I mean, you know, people had very, very strong opinions on uh, who they're backing. Uh, to me, the most important thing is keeping an eye on the prize, which is November. You know, we've got to have someone who's going to appoint Supreme Court justices, who's going to have the power of the executive order, who's going to appoint all the cabinet secretaries and deal with all the agencies, you know, that, that's a lot of stuff that's really important, and uh, I think it's more important that everyone get back together in November. Some some of us, including people like Barbara Lee from California and others, have had this conversation, and we feel uh, we're more credible by not endorsing and not getting involved uh, and trying to help bring people back home as we need to uh, when the time is really most important. It's getting a little chippy out there. Bernie Sanders said that Hillary Clinton is, quote, not qualified due to her paid speeches and other uh, malfeasances. Do you have any concern that it's getting a little too chippy? You know, that was the first one, and I think, you know, I, I heard the, the both interactions, and, you know, I mean, Hillary Clinton was probably a little too clever by half by not saying that he was qualified because they've had a respectful relationship, and I think Bernie Sanders uh, overreacted with a, a little bit of a diatribe about how she wasn't but, you know, if that's the worst thing, uh, our worst action is better than the best day in the Republican primary. So I'm not too concerned. Uh, you know, no one's discussed uh, the size of their body parts or uh, talked about the other person's spouse in a significantly negative way. I think we're doing all right. To get back to the Republican side, um, <clears throat> you said in the in the in the opening here that um, you felt like a lot of your uh, Republican colleagues statewide were kind of holding their noses a bit and casting a vote for for Cruz. Uh, obviously, we've talked to uh, Congressman Reed Ribble on the show quite a bit. He's he's sort of a, a as fanatical and anti-Trump as you can be when you're sort of a steady, level-headed Wisconsinite. Um, <clears throat> it's weird to me. 
in a parallel universe, and maybe you haven't had personal dealings with Ted Cruz, uh, but in a parallel universe where Ted Cruz was maybe only 75% of the jerk he's been to his colleagues, is he? would he be faring better in this nomination process? Or are his policies too out of step with even uh, the sort of lion's share of Republicans in Congress? Well, I mean, I, I believe, and I could be wrong, but I believe his only formal endorsement on the Senate side is Lindsey Graham, who's also said that if uh, Ted Cruz was shot on the floor of the Senate, no one would like, finger the shooter. That's not a great rigging endorsement. And, um, you know, he's the guy who comes and stirs up our Tea Party on our side. I don't think people take him especially seriously. And he does have some pretty extreme views. Uh, you know, he wouldn't bring in a single new voter. So, I mean, I have to admit, part of me is torn. If Ted Cruz is the dominee, uh, they... Uh, pretty much will have the the bottom base that they can have come out because there's no real new people going to look at Ted Cruz and say, "Wow, what an interesting politician! How, what, what an interesting uh, concept!" And and but Donald Trump has you know insulted so many people that you know he's going to have some difficulties and where you know maybe some people who watch All Star Wrestling will come out and vote for him that you know don't normally vote that that could give him maybe a little bump. Either way, they're in trouble, and I think that's where the whole reboot thing happens, right? Uh, why I, I, I contacted some of my Republican friends who endorsed Cruz in Wisconsin, and I'm like, I sent the text, you know, hey, I think I finally found a line in your press release where you said something nice about Ted Cruz, and they uh, laughed back. <laughs> you know, they know that, you know, their message was, let's get to a do-over, but, you know, it's kind of hard to have a do-over, and what does Donald Trump do at that point? So, they're, you know, they wish they had the superdelegate process, I think, right now that we have on the Democratic side, is uh, they don't quite know how to adjust for this. There's a debate mostly on the left, over whether Ted Cruz is as bad as Donald Trump, even though Donald Trump, you know, openly uh, says he doesn't like anything that this country stands for. I wonder where you fall in this debate. Do you think they're they're comparable, or do you think Donald Trump is uh, something else? Well, you know, Ted Cruz is, you know, definitely extremist. He kind of personifies the Tea Party, which is a, a subset of the Republican Party. So, you know, he would be more extreme. You know, Donald Trump is just kind of running this xenophobic, misogynistic, racist campaign, but he's also got a populist tone around trade in China. Uh, but, of course, it's a hypocritical tone because all of his ties and things are produced in China, and he brings in workers from uh, other countries to do his projects here. I mean, he's more of a a populist guy, who a billionaire who wants to get elected president. Um, and, you know, I think in the end, uh, Ted Cruz is probably, um, you know, more extreme when voters really get a chance to look at it. Uh, Ted, you know, Donald Trump is just seems to, he wants to compete with Triumph the Insult Dog. And, you know, that's kind of an interesting <laughs> campaign strategy. But, like, insulting Scott Walker in Wisconsin, even though Scott Walker said that was like, you know, attacking Brett Favre or Aaron Rodgers, which is a, a quite an overstatement, uh, quite, quite an ego that Scott Walker has. Uh, still, it wasn't probably the smartest strategy in Wisconsin in a Republican primary to attack your sitting Republican government. Yeah, it was like he was almost trying to throw that race. One last question, uh, because we haven't spent, we don't have, we, we don't talk a lot about down ticket races. Maybe it's generally too early, but you have a genuinely interesting Senate race, a genuinely, genuinely interesting Senate race in Wisconsin between the incumbent Ron Johnson and the man he defeated, Russ Feingold. How do you see the lay of the land there? And and can you provide us with any insight of how it came to pass that Russ Feingold fell out of favor in the first place? Yeah, well, it was 2010. But, you know, what's really interesting is I was, you know, I was active in the legislature at the time is in 2010, people actually said to Russ, Russ, I like you. I just think it's time for a change. And so some of the, the stronger feelings nationwide when they're throwing Democrats out of all sorts of offices um, hit Russ in a little bit different of a way because people still really liked Russ. And he used to go to every single county, 72 counties, uh, for a listening session every single year. And since he announced in his first 100 days, he did that again. Ron Johnson has two offices in the entire state. And I think if you ask him, uh, any direct routes between cities, he wouldn't know him because he hasn't spent the time back home doing uh, what Russ used to always do. Burn. Midwest burn. You've got a lot of uh, different approaches here, and I think, you know, Russ um, still has that goodwill, and in Wisconsin, uh, in a presidential year, that'll pay out. Well, it's going to be an interesting race to see. It's all quite interesting all down the line, and Wisconsin could play a major role 
in determining both presidential fortunes and congressional fortunes down the line. Congressman Pacan, thank you very much for joining us today. We hope we have you back soon. Absolutely. Thank you. And we will be right back. Hey, guys. We'll get back to the program in just a second. I just wanted to take a minute to welcome all of you into my safe space here. To thank all of you for tuning into the show and helping us to create an Inside the Beltway show for Beltway Outsiders and make it a reality. We love hearing from you. Your feedback has been such a tremendously good, positive influence on us every week. Now, you can help other people find out about this show that you're helping to build. If you are an iTunes user, please look for our show. Subscribe if you haven't. And use iTunes' widgets to rate our show and to leave us a comment. It will help people like you find this show, and we can keep building what we've got going together. So head on out to iTunes, subscribe, rate, say hello to us and your fellow listeners. Thanks so much, guys. And now, here's something else that happened. Hey, we're back. Back with Zach. Hey. Back with Brian Grimm. Sorry, your name doesn't rhyme with back. Mm. <laughs> We're, it's, it's all gone off the rails already. Um, uh, this week, the New York Daily News sat down with an editorial meeting with Democratic candidate Bernie Sanders. And I remember I came to work that day and I read it and nothing particularly jumped out at me. But what a friggin idiot I am, because it was <laughs> essentially it was basically the a, a world changing outrage inducing interview for some reason why yeah the uh, uh the the pile on began pretty quickly uh with people you know clipping little bits of it and screenshotting it and passing it around and saying uh this is uh just the most unpresidential this shows that uh sanders is all hype that sanders is all um Big ideas and no idea how to get them done. Doesn't really know what he's talking about. They're basically uh, saying he's a lightweight without saying he's a lightweight. There are parts of the interview where I think he is a lightweight. I mean, he does not come across as deeply interested about foreign policy in any way, shape, or form. He's got a few flashcards he throws at the at, at interviews that, that essentially encapsulate some painfully generic positions. And I've always wondered why... That's the case because I would have expected more from someone who Especially takes a such an outsider approach up, to policy. And he came up during the Vietnam War, where, which you would think would have inspired him to think more about foreign affairs. But for some reason, this all got tangled up in this idea. And you used that, to care about the, you know, the, the the left down in Central and South America. Right, mm-hmm. right. But it, instead, we we found out that everyone's mad or upset or. I don't know what the right word for it is, jumping around like a dipshit uh, because of his answers to questions uh, like how would he wind down big banks. I have to say, I read his answers to how he would wind down big banks, and I found them completely standard what I would expect him to say. Why on earth was this a big deal? I think for the most part, people don't actually study financial policy, which is why people like me have a job doing it and explaining it to people because it's kind of boring. And so you assume that complex financial institutions like J.P. Morgan Chase or Citibank would require some very complex detailed plan from the federal government if you're going to break them up. But in fact, you don't. All you have to do is set an asshole threshold, you know, some some percentage of GDP. It's what they did with Brown-Kaufman as an amendment to Dodd-Frank back in, in 2010, which an amendment which did not pass. But you set some as, asset level threshold. You can't get any bigger than this. And then you just tell a bank downsize as profitably as you can to that level. You let the bank figure it out. That's, this is what people, you know, companies do this all the time in mergers. They make divestments and spinoffs. It's not that complex uh, a set of corporate decisions. Um, and that's basically what Bernie Sanders said. And people, and people freaked out because they're like, wait, wait, it's got to be more complicated. And it really doesn't have to be. What do you think, Ryan, what do you think people expected him to say about this matter? Other than there's a law I will use to do it. I think part of his problem uh, came in his honesty when he would say, uh, and this was throughout the interview, he'd say, "I don't know, I haven't, I haven't thought about that." Uh, and and part of it came in that exchange. There was this weird moment where, over and over, the Daily News kept flipping the script back to talk about the Federal Reserve uh, when uh, Sanders was answering about the Treasury Department and the the administration, because Dodd Frank gives the Treasury Department the authority to unwind. 
uh, systemically uh, dangerous uh, banks. Well, it gives it gives a, a whole bunch of regulators working together the authority to do that. One of them right. is the Treasury Department, the Treasury Secretary. One of them is the Fed Chairman. One of them is the head of the FDIC. Right. I mean, it's it's a lot of regulators. Right, and they, and they kept they kept flipping back to uh, the Fed. The Fed can the Fed do this? And he, and he would he said, look, I don't know if the Fed can do it uh, because literally no one knows. It is an open legal question if the Fed alone could do it. Uh, which, which is, you know, something, you know, he, the, his answers were from a kind of rhetorical perspective uh, lacking. In, 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 you know, if you read a transcript um, from somebody like President Obama, it reads like he sat down and wrote it and copy edited it. You know, he talks in, in, in these fluid paragraphs. That's not, that's not how Bernie Sanders speaks. Part of it is that Obama likes to hear himself speak. Right, like he, and he's very good at it, and he enjoys the, the process of it. He, he invites people over for an hour and a half off the record sessions to just speak to them about what's on about you know what what's on his mind, domestic affairs, foreign affairs, whatever. It would be hard to imagine Bernie Sanders doing that. Oh you know, yeah, absolutely. He doesn't, he doesn't enjoy it, so so he just kind of rat-a-tat-tats it and wants to move on. I, I also think to some extent, it's very difficult to believe that all of these questions asked by the New York Daily News were asked in good faith. I mean, one of them was about a court decision on, on a, a certain too-big-to-fail institution that came down last week, which has been quite controversial, in large part because the actual decision itself has not been sealed. It is not publicly available. So Bernie Sanders was literally asked a, a question about the legal implications of a court decision that nobody has read. But he, but he ridiculous. But on the other hand, he didn't say that. He didn't say nobody's read that. It just came out. So he's like, oh, I haven't really looked at that very closely. Yeah. So he, so he didn't do himself any favors. But they were certainly you can you can go from the very beginning of that transcript and and see immediately that they're that they're trying to trip him up. They start out, uh, they start out on trade, and he handles it just fine. Then they, then they move to how are corporations undermining the fabric of society, trying to like kind of fact check that big claim of his. Uh, and he talks about banks, and then there's well, like, what about non-banks? Can you name any non-bank corporations? They talked about GE. Yeah, and he brings up GE, and he's like, and like, do you think Apple's destroying America? And he says, no, I don't think Apple's destroying America, but I wish I wish they would pay taxes and build some of their phones here in the U.S. And they say, well, how is that undermining the fabric of the United States? And he's like, well, you know, if you have less tax revenue and you have fewer jobs, <laughs> then I'm not trying to be hyperbolic here, but you know, that, that's part of the fabric. And you know uh, what? Jobs and and tech and revenue. What what struck me besides the fact that my big takeaway from the interview is that maybe the New York Daily News editors don't quite understand the fact that the Treasury and the Federal Reserve are two different entities, and that Dodd Frank empowered one of them to take care of too big to fail banks and not the other. Uh, but it seemed to me like the, they were hunting for more hyperbolic answers than Sanders was prepared to give. I think that they. I think they literally expected Sanders to say, my plan to unwind big banks is to fucking personally get in the weeds of these banks and start calling shots and, like, literally pick them apart according to my own recipe. When it, all he was really saying was, like, what you said. We'll set an asset threshold, and you guys decide what's best for you and paring down, but you've got to pare down. This is... this basic view about how to break up the banks, that is not a new idea. That has been around literally since 2010, at least. Um, that, is the, that is the process by which uh, break up the banks advocates attempted to break up the banks in 2010 in Dodd-Frank and, and failed. They couldn't get that amendment passed. But this is not a new idea. And people who are asking questions about financial reform and Wall Street reform should be aware of that as a as as a potential answer. And and you know, when you're asking these questions like, oh, you're gonna do it by Federal Reserve fiat, you're just gonna dictate to them. I mean, those those are just bizarre questions. Uh, and it, it's it's hard, you know, they're they're not questions that are asked by by serious people in good faith. The yeah, the Israel Palestine one was was kind of interesting too, on a on a bunch of different levels. Uh, and they they made they, they asked some weird questions there. Um, how should the how should the Israeli military have attacked Gaza so that there were f fewer civilian casualties? And he was like, first you're asking me to run the Israeli government policy on settlements, now you want me to run their military policy? He's like, I don't know, don't bomb the hospitals and the kids. Stop killing people. Um, and, then they, and then they said, what about settlements? Um, he said, yeah, you, you know, they should pull back the settlements that are illegal. Well, how, what, what, what set, how do you determine what's illegal? He said, well, if they violate the treaties. 
They're like, oh, okay, well. And they said, well, <laughs> now, you know, you're radically reshaping. That's a dramatic departure from uh, you know, the, the U.S. position. If the new president comes in and says you have to pull back settlements, uh, that, that really shakes, shakes the negotiations up. Uh, how, how does that affect the, the, the prospects of a two-state solution? And in fact, uh, the idea that the Israelis should have to pull back their uh, illegal settlements has been a part of the U.S. position since George W. Bush. Central. At least. Yeah, central. At least, if not, if not going back further, uh, further than Bush. So there was a weird element of we're going to get this guy and, and it doesn't matter. I, I have to, I have one last question here is, is, uh, in in aren't Clinton supporters who are who have been like dialing down on this interview kind of giving away the game and saying, by the way, we have zero interest in financial regulatory reform. It's not an issue for us. We're not going to work on that at all while 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 Hillary's in office. It's a dead issue. We don't care about it. Well, I don't even know if this is the time that they signal those kinds of things. They're just trying to bury him. Uh, and if if that means forgetting that they themselves have said, Dot Frank gives us the ability to break up the banks. Uh, then they'll just then they'll just forget about that. that and 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 that's that's fine. It's hand to hand combat, uh, and they're trying to stick the knife in them. And the Daily News handed them this knife and said, "Here's his gut. Check out the knife." <laughs> yes. I don't know. I th- I think it's a it's a rhetorically um, difficult thing for for the Clinton campaign to have done. I mean. You, you can see spokesmen mocking, oh, but but breaking up the banks, it's so fun to say. And they're using fundraising uh, off of this, you know, sending, sending out the transcript in a fundraising email. Um, to me, I think that that does suggest that that's the campaign sending a signal that these types of things are not important to them. Um, and if they want to correct that <laughs> signal, they can they can just send a different signal. I'll, I'll leave you guys with this. I, um, I was reading uh, Facebook like an idiot. And there was this article going around from some organization called Garnet News. Who the fuck knows who they are? But um, it was a weird, like, total hit piece on Sanders that basically said, Sanders says that Wall Street is a business of fraud, but look at all of his Wall Street investments. And, like, I was prepared to see, oh, maybe Sanders, maybe Sanders, like, put money in, like, terrible industries. And, like, literally this news organization simply said, like, had a list of, like, bog standard IRA retirement plan index funds who <laughs> were saying is like, this is proof he's a hypocrite. And it left me with the feeling that Democrats really need to do more to teach people what financial institutions are bad and which ones are good and what it means to be a <laughs> Wall Street critic and what it means to reform Wall Street. It doesn't mean pull your money out of the stock market and not have retirement accounts. And it certainly doesn't mean defame a man for having retirement accounts while simultaneously suggesting Wall Street could do better by people. And uh, in, in an environment like this, where uh, where this is this is the knife being used, is taking is taking uh, Democrats far further and further away from some essential lessons that they should uh, manifest in their own platform about financial regulatory reform. Yeah, there's there really is no socialist alive who isn't a hypocrite, right? I mean, there's not much. We're all trying to make a we're all trying to make a buck. And we 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 over at HuffPost did some ridiculous uh, hit piece on uh, Sheila Bear about five years ago where. Uh, it was a piece that said, aha, Sheila Bear says whatever she says about banks, but she has a mortgage from Bank of America. Who wrote at, that? At market rates. <laughs> who, who wrote that? Uh, I don't remember who wrote it. Oh, they're not here anymore. Um, not because of that. Um, <laughs> but I remember it being a hilariously bad. Like, Yes, she has a mortgage at 5.5% on her, yeah. on her modest home. <laughs> oh, well. She and her husband own. It's a terrible, terrible campaign season. I think that we can all agree on that. All right, Zach, Ryan, thank you. There'll be something new, some new bullshit to talk about next week, but that's what we got for you today. We'll see. We'll be right back. back. 
So precisely six years ago in Raleigh County, West Virginia, 29 coal miners working at a Massey Energy mine were killed in an explosion, the worst mining disaster in the United States since 1970. A subsequent investigation found that the disaster was, as they say, completely avoidable and caused by numerous flagrant safety violations that went purposefully ignored by those in charge of the mine. This week, those dead miners and the community that has supported them during this time finally got a taste of what justice is like in America. It's tiny and it's bitter and it's not capable of fitting the crime. Don Blankenship, the CEO of Massey Energy, was convicted of conspiring to violate federal mine safety standards, which sounds pretty good. And indeed, it is perhaps one of the few times a CEO of his caliber has ever been convicted of a crime like this. But when it starts sounding bad is when you find out what the punishment was. He is getting one year in prison, one year of supervised release, and will pay a $250,000 fine. To put it in context, this is a man who made $19 million his last year as charge at Massey Energy for killing 29 people. Joining us to talk about this is our friend Arthur Delaney. Hi. And Huffington Post politics page editor and West Virginia resident extraordinaire, <laughs> Paige Lavender. Hello. Paige, it's uh, you know, it's your birthday this week. It is. So happy birthday. The whole week is my birthday. Right. That's how it works. That's excellent. It's a pretty good deal that yeah. you get around here, Seven a week-long a week long birthday. Yeah. But so here's my present for you, is we get to revisit a story that I know has, uh, that you have actually covered quite quite extensively, mm-hmm. and which still, I think, rouses a certain amount of emotion in you. I, I remember yesterday, when I came to you and pitched the segment to you, you sort of, like, visibly flinched at the sound of uh, me talking about Don Blankenship. So tell me about what it is like for people far from this Washington bubble, people in West Virginia, when they uh, when they live through stories like this. Yeah. Um, so, full disclosure, I feel like I should say that I had people that I knew who died at Upper Big Branch. Um, so I, I mostly cover the sort of legal aspect of it, but I try not to get into the personal stories because I'm really tied up in that. Um, some extended family members uh, there. And so I went to a few of the funerals and I watched all of that unfold, you know, as it was happening and it was very hard. And I think what makes it especially hard for Southern West Virginia is because I mean, mining is such a way of life there. You know, if you want to have a decent living and you don't necessarily think college is right for you or vocational school is right for you, coal mining is such a great alternative because it pays very well. You know, you can make a whole career out of it. There are, you know, men who stay there, you know, start when they're 18 or 20 and stay there their whole lives and are able to support their family and have good insurance and, you know, all that. And so... It just sort of, to use a very cheesy phrase, it sort of shook the core, I guess, of southern West Virginia when this happened because you, you, everyone knows somebody that goes to the mountains every day. I mean, when I had first heard about the explosion, like, I immediately texted my parents and I'm like, who do we know that works there? Because I knew we knew somebody. And so that's how it was felt, you know, when it happened. And then when you have this, the sentencing, which is just... Not enough. I mean, uh, you know, I don't know how else to say it. One year and $250,000 for a millionaire is like, what is that? It's like a blink of an eye and like he's going to be over it and whatever. Uh, It just feels wholly inadequate because so many people in that area pour their whole livelihood and their health. I mean, there are so many men whose health have been compromised by this industry. Like setting aside any safety standards, you know, when you breathe in coal dust and day in and day out, it's going to impact, you know, your, the way your body works. Um, and so for so many people to pour their life into this and for him to so callously treat workers and their safety and to, and to consider their safety, not at all, uh, you know, it makes people lose a little faith in an industry that has really carried the state for a very long time. And, uh, Blankenship spoke at the time of his sentencing, but it was just... Can you describe uh, what that was like? I, I know people were not impressed. So I actually went on a little Twitter rant about this yesterday, and I hate Twitter rants, so I hated myself <laughs> a little for it. But to clarify for people, this he wasn't charged with murder or anything. like this. These charges were for 
you know, willfully violating safety standards, which like technically this has nothing to do with the explosion in a way. Like he was violating safety, safety standards all the time. Right. Then this explosion happened and it kind of brought it to light. So. And this is like looking the other way when you are making sure there isn't too much methane. Right. Or, you know, you're doing these safety checks and they're done inadequately. Exactly. And, 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 and one of the Tommy Davis, who um, is, is my distant cousin and, who lost his son and his brother and his nephew in that explosion said yesterday that, you know, Blankenship makes phone calls all day long. He could have made one phone call to shut down the mine just to have somebody come look and make sure all the safety standards were up to par. And he never did. Anyway, so in his statement yesterday at, or, or at his sentencing, he said he was sorry to the judge because he brought up Upper Big Branch and the judge said, judge said, you know, this isn't about that. I don't need to be hearing about that because that's not what this case is about. So he said, I'm sorry then. But he never said, I'm sorry. And he actually at one point phrased it, I want to express my sorrow to the families of these miners. Those miners were good men. And it's right. like, just fucking say you're sorry, man. I'm sorry is all you have to say. Yeah, That's what expressing... Like putting himself on that level, on the same level as them. Yeah, it's like um, expressing your sorrow. I was affected sorrow. by this too. Yes, it's, and it's just like, it blew my mind how like tone deaf his statements were at the sentencing these miners were really great men. They did a really great job. And it's like, yeah, but you didn't like say that. You know what I mean? It's I know it's all rhetoric. And at this point, it's not bringing anybody back. It's not changing anybody's minds. But I just uh, well, the, ju- the judge Sorry. had not allowed victims families to speak at the right. time. So that's why he was like, Blankenship, you can't start talking about yeah. it now. You can talk about your... Yeah, I think we have to leave aside the possibility that Don Blankenship may be an evil piece of shit, but <laughs> but leaving aside that, let's talk about the, the prosecution in this case. Uh, as the Washington Post reports, government officials uh, who are trying this case uh, really went to great lengths to try to portray Blankenship not just as a negligent owner of a mine, but as the, quote, kingpin of a, of a criminal enterprise. There's who contributed to a quote unspoken conspiracy that employees were to ignore safety standards and practices if they threatened profits unquote. What really strikes me about the case that the 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 government who the people the officials who made the case really think they did a good job. Um, uh, Stephen R. Ruby, the assistant U.S. attorney who uh, who helped prosecute this case, uh, gave a quote that said. Uh, he 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 quote urged the judge in this case to order a one year sentence in jail, arguing that a lighter penalty would quote signal that committing mine safety crimes might be a good gamble for a CEO. Uh, it was also reported that Labor Secretary Thomas Perez told the New York Times that the decision was sent quote a clear message that no mine operators above the law that there must be accountability when people lose their lives because of the neglect of their employer. So I'm reading on that and I'm just like I don't know. It still seems to me like it would be a pretty good gamble for a CEO. To, to engage in these practices because one year in prison, one, yeah. a so pittance of a fine. The thing that's super weak about this argument. Um, so, yes, he got one year in prison. He's paying $250,000, which some people are like he got the max time. He did. That's the largest it penalty is. that's ever been applied to a case like that. that. And that's true. And and it's isn't it kind of sad? It's one year. Sad. And so I know that, the, like I said, I just went on this rant about how his trial wasn't related directly to the explosion. But people were pointing out that one year equals like 12 and a half days for each minor that died in that explosion, right. <laughs> which is like so crazy to me. But also uh, he was actually acquitted of two more, two felony charges, which carried uh, more time. Like one of them was at least a five year sentence, I think. So, th- so the thing is, is he could have had a lot more time in jail. And at the time when, you know, before the ruling was made, people were, you know, hoping he would be guilty on all these charges or whatever. And so now it just sort of seems kind of like weak to think, oh, well, he got the whole year. And it's just like, well, you know, but they still like let him off on these other things. And I know it's very frustrating to me and, and to others that he could have spent a lot more time thinking about what he's done. So he he was convicted of a misdemeanor. Right. Yeah. And uh our colleague Dave Jameson and I, we, we tried to reach out to some lawyers. Why is this a misdemeanor when nearly 30 people are killed? And it's, it, the answer is under the Mine Act. All these violations, other than actually falsifying the books, is a misdemeanor. So it's basically a weakness in federal law that George Miller, who is formerly the chairman of the uh, Education Labor Committee in the House, had tried to change but couldn't. So this is like a known 
weakness in our federal law that essentially allows people who do what Blankenship did to get this light punishment in the worst case scenario. Yeah, what kills me about this is I'm quite sure that an opiate addict in Appalachia would do more time for his opiate addiction than this guy's doing for killing 29 people. That is galling to me. And it's a, it's a perverse the way justice seems to work. Yeah. Paige, it, it seems to me like there's, we have a constant cover, we constantly cover stories like this out of West Virginia in particular. We had the Elk River spill not so long ago. Um, and it's very difficult to get people to care about West Virginia because they're far from the Madden crowds and, you know, here in a cellist stand, sell a corridor where all the media is. Um, what is it like to live in a place like Raleigh County, West Virginia, and to endure this perception that perhaps these fates are deserved? There is this perception that everyone in West Virginia, and particularly southern West Virginia, especially in the last few years, is like a druggie or like a coal miner, and like they don't want to do anything. And like I think that that is a lot of misconception. You know, West Virginia, <laughs> I'm biased. <laughs> Clearly, Go it's on. full of. We wouldn't have you on if you weren't biased. <laughs> um, it's full of beautiful, hardworking, caring passionate people. And I don't think that a lot of people see that. And so those people are there fighting for more regulations in the mines and more regulations in their water and, and things like that. You know, they want to, you know, embrace the coal industry while still expanding their opportunities elsewhere so that we don't have to have generations of coal miners relying on that as their main job for years to come. But I think a lot of people don't see it that way looking from the outside in. So I don't have a solution for that. Or a reason for it, but I just, I don't know. I would hope that people would understand that not everything you read about the people there is is true. Well, uh, you know, I'll just say this. The wealth of this nation was built by men who extracted wealth out of the ground and built the country, and they definitely deserve better than what they're getting out of this trial, and they deserve to have a better voice, and they deserve more justice. But Well, well now there's going to be an appeal of his sentence by Blankenship, so less justice may be in the offing. Yeah, go, go figure, go figure. Well, uh, depressing news, but, you know, if we don't talk about this stuff, things never change, so that's the way that is. Um, Arthur and Paige, thanks for being with us today. Thank you. And happy birthday. <laughs> thanks. We'll be right back. So we just talked with Alexis Goldstein, our pal, about some bad things. But now, guess what? Good news. Good news for everybody. Uh, we're, we're, we're finally happy to bring you some good news. A new rule from the Department of Labor is going to help protect people who need protecting. Yeah, we're here. It's going to be fun to talk about this. Well, uh, let's move on to, I guess, a thin ray of good news this week. This is a big ray of good news. All right. Big this ray is about as news. big as it gets. All right. <laughs> t- talk to us about good news, Zach. I'd ra- you know what? I'm in a bad mood. I would really rather that Alexis do it because I don't okay. want to bring people down. <laughs> All right, Alexis. So if you are like... Be a ray of sunshine Okay, today. so it turns out you may think that the person that advises you on saving for retirement always was obligated to try to give you good advice that would help you save Sure, better. in their commercials, they talk about how they're going to help people. Right. I don't see commercials for, for retirement brokers saying... Do battle with us and maybe not get screwed in the end. <laughs> right. You know, it's like <laughs> Old someone people. images of, you know, your child and then they grow up and then they're in a graduation cap, things like that. Well, it and turns you get a boat. out you get a boat at the end. Oh, yeah. Boat. Boat. Everyone gets a boat. <laughs> boat, puppies. A hole in the water into which you throw money. <laughs> <laughs> it turns out not every person advising Americans on their retirement savings is actually looking out for them. Wait, what? Yeah. Uh, it turns out, it's, it, uh, I guess, prior to yesterday, and uh, it's 
it was perfectly allowed to prior to yesterday. yesterday, It was perfectly allowed to steer people into things that weren't in their best interest if it happened to make the broker more money. So if I get a higher, if I'm a broker and I get a higher commission because I steer Zach into the stripes and stars retirement account, uh, I'm going to steer him into that. And I'll just tell Zach that it has a fancy name and it sounds so good, right? But But actually, there's something cheaper that would make Zach more money over time. But I'm not going to tell him about that because I get a kickback if I steer him into the stars. Surely you would have to tell me that you would you would be eligible for a let's say really fancy paid vacation for steering me into that account prior to this rule. Nope. Nope. I'm shocked. (laughs) (laughs) My gosh. You wouldn't even have to disclose it. Huh. So the Department of Labor issued a rule that finally puts the kibosh on this. That's right. So essentially, they have a new rule called the Conflict of Interest Rule. Um, they, the White House had calculated previously that bad advice, conflicted advice, was costing Americans $17 billion a year. That was basically being taken out of American workers' pockets and put into Wall Street dealers' pockets. Um, so this new rule essentially says that, no, you have to actually give people good advice that's in their best interest um, that doesn't just benefit your bottom how did they pull it off? Because there's an enormous, the, the what I call the scam sector of our economy is one of the things that our government famously works to protect. The Debbie Wasserman Schultz right now is famously working to protect scammy uh, payday lenders. Uh, and it's, it's not a thing that you can find much of a, I mean, you can't really credit the Democrats for being stronger on the issue of, of, getting the scam sector of the economy diminished. So well, how do we pull this off? This has been in the works for years, and the Department of Labor proposed this right? many, many, many years ago, got scared, you know, withdrew it, and now it's come back. Uh, Secretary Perez deserves a lot of credit for pushing this, I think. Uh, but Perez. it's not over because the Republicans are definitely going to, I think, I'm going to make the prediction, going to push back <laughs> against this. The industry's probably going to sue. There's a representative named Ann Wagner who's, who's basically made this her soul fight and said if she had to, she will defund the Department of Labor uh, in to order to make sure this rule does not go through. Yes. And she said that to a room full of Wall Street brokers who, of course, applauded her oh, course. Uh, when she said that that was a bit ago. But I think it's not over yet. But I think it happened because there has been years and years and years of advocates pushing, pushing, pushing for this. Um, and against let's, the years and years and years of lobbyists for scam artists and let's, who have been let's, and they've, yeah. let's, not, let's not neglect the so role played by, by friend of the show, Senator Elizabeth Warren. Warren from Massachusetts. Correct. She's been she's been, you know, pitching this for a long time. And and the president, the president decided to resubmit this role, th- th- this rule and decided that this was worth getting behind. And it was a fight worth fighting. And we give the president a hard time a lot of the times on the show about about financial stuff. But this is one where he got it right and and fought it, which is why we give him a hard time. So he'll get things right. Well, so, it's it's tough when he gets when he gets it right. You're like, why can't you just get it right all the credit, time, man? Credit but, to <laughs> us, of course. We take credit too. Uh, but that's 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 obviously good news. Uh, wh- what more needs to be done to protect uh, retirement savings? Well, I think we just need to make sure that the rule goes forward, that we don't have too many people in Congress that are trying to pass new legislation to immediately overturn it. And so if folks are interested, um, Americans for Financial Reform you know, has a little action out to write your member of Congress just to say that you support the rule, or you could just call their office and say, hey, I heard about this conflict of interest rule. I just want to make sure that you're behind it and support it. Um, but I think that there's there's a further battle to be waged over this. The industry will sue, and then the Department of Labor will have to respond to that, but I think the rule will will hold up in court. That's my prediction. I, I, I think that's that's right, and I think if you if you pull back the lens a little bit here, you know we have a retirement crisis in the United States. We often talk about it as if it's an entitlement crisis Correct. because this is the narrative that people who want to cut social security retirement benefits is an spend. earned benefit. However. You know, old people not living in squalor is sort of like a basic thing that decent societies do. Wait, so you're saying you don't want people dying in the street? Uh, Yeah, (laughs) actually, I'm I'm going to own up to it. (laughs) Um, And and you know, this takes care of the sector or helps take care of the sector of people who have retirement accounts, right? And that's that's not that many people. Only about a third of the country actually has money in the stock market through these these retirement accounts. So this is a good rule. It's it's good. It's going to help things, but. We have a broader problem with old people not having enough money to eat and live when they get old. And that's something that's something we should focus on as a problem. 
that needs to be solved, not just what the solvency of the Social Security program is. You know, Social Security is a tool used to fight poverty for the elderly. That is a thing that should not exist in a decent society, and we have we have real problems with that. So. I, th- I think more broadly, that's that's something to just to acknowledge as a problem and to focus on. I advocate for, on, on Social Security my Alex Rodriguez plan, my A Rod plan, which is raise the income cap to the level of A Rod's salary, mm. make him pay Social Security, make his employer match it, and then go home and be happy. That's my plan. Pretty easy done, if if weren't for all the fucking lobbyists. But okay, that's. Outside of that, you know, invest conservatively in Vanguard index funds if you can. <laughs> Just Vanguard. Uh, I, Vanguard's a good company. I'm I'm in Vanguard index funds and they're nice. They're Dude, nice. we're not even getting paid for that advertisement. Ooh. We're not. No, exactly. <laughs> exactly. Though I will take Vanguard's money if they want to send it to me. Um, anyway, anyway, so so uh, mostly bad news, but some silver lining for people, but more needs to be done, and we need more people to come to Washington and help do it. That's basically what yeah, we're Yeah, so at. maybe if we get rid of these tax havens, we will have more money to make sure that old people don't live in squalor. It's yep. weird. If you want to solve poverty, you can just take money from the rich people and give it to the poor people. Yeah, it's crazy. Oh, no. Crazy. What an idea. And you know what? The rich people still live pretty fucking happy. They still get to be rich. It's yeah, crazy. it's great. They can still buy a boat and throw their money into an ocean like all the other idiots with boats. Sorry, boat owners, but the best boats are other people's <laughs> boats. They're not my boat. All right. Thanks for uh, coming on the show, Alexis. Thanks and, for having and, me. Uh, and, and making lo- bank lobbyists angry, which is our main point of view here. Uh, and Zach Carter, thank you. And we will be right back. So that's what happened this week. This podcast was produced, edited, and engineered by Christine Canetta. We are always watched over by our loving angel, Caitlin Bogucki. I'm Jason Lincolns. This week, we were joined by Wisconsin Congressman Mark Pocan, Alexis Goldstein of Americans for Financial Reform, and Huffington Post reporters Zach Carter, Arthur Delaney, Ryan Grimm, and Paige Lavender. So That Happened is available on iTunes at iTunes.com slash So That Happened. Check out the whole family of Huffington Post podcasts in the iTunes store. And while you're there, subscribe and tell your friends. If there's something you'd like to hear us talk about, send an email to so that happened at HuffingtonPost.com. Thanks to all of you for listening, and we miss you already. When it comes to your finances, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, and you've invested all that you can. Now it's time to take those investments to the next level by using the brand behind every great investor, Yahoo Finance. As America's number one finance destination, Yahoo Finance has everything you need, whether you're a seasoned trader or just dipping your toes into the market. Join the millions of investors who trust Yahoo Finance to guide them on their financial journey. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit yahoofinance.com the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com.